Hi, Spark. Thanks so much for joining us today. I realize that um, you may have particularly weird feelings about joining us this weekend, given that um, for many people it would have involved celebrating Memorial Day, and you are probably having to do it in a different way than you have done in years past. And uh, it's a just another reminder of how different um, our current situation is. You know, it's also the case that for many Americans in this country right now, many Muslim Americans are celebrating Eid this weekend, which is one of the biggest holidays that Muslims celebrate. And so this time is uh, uh, different for for them as well in, in celebrating. And we're all in this together and we're all uh, having to adjust on the fly. And I appreciate you all for making it work uh, as well as you have. We are continuing our series in Ephesians, and we're actually on the uh, the home stretch here, and the, we're more than halfway done with Ephesians. And today, uh, our text is going to focus on gifts, God-given gifts uh, in particular. And um, you know, as a reminder for those of you who are trying to uh, remember just where we are in the flow of the letter, uh, Ephesians uh, is a letter that was written presumably by the Apostle Paul, and it was circulated in the Mediterranean within a couple decades of Jesus's life on earth. And the first half of this letter that we've been discussing was uh, Paul laying out a case for uh, how Jesus's life death, resurrection, enthronement has created uh, a, a humanity that is fundamentally united. And all of the forces that tear us apart, um, one human to another, um, humans to the universe or to nature around us, all of those, have those barriers and hostilities have been destroyed and brought together in Jesus. And the, the back half of this book, this letter that we're going through now, talks about well, if that's true, then what are the implications? What changes uh, about the way that we relate to each other? And this text in particular will take that, um, take that theme and move it forward by talking about um, what Jesus has given us to help us be able to be united with one another and support one another. So let's get into our text today. So we'll be starting in Ephesians 4 and verse 7. I'll be reading a few verses from there. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, this is quoting the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
Now, there is a, a beautiful image here where, where the author asks a rhetorical question, but basically the, the point of that rhetorical question towards the beginning is, uh, is, is to say, Jesus has been everywhere. Jesus uh, originated from heaven, came to earth, and uh, is enthroned again in heaven. And in the process, so Jesus in the process of being everywhere, all over the, the known universe, has distributed gifts uh, along the way so that it comes Covers, uh, it covers all of our experiences. And so then the questions raised by this text that we're going to focus on today are about those gifts. It's about uh, who gets them. Are certain gifts reserved for certain, certain types of people, right? There are, uh, if you look around in the world, you might think that certain talents are reserved for certain genders or races or orientations, right? Uh, but the question is, from Paul's perspective, um, who, who is actually the one getting gifts? Also, we would ask how. Um, how do people, uh, how do we get these gifts that Paul is describing in this text, uh, this text and similar texts? And also, um, you know, is it uh, luck? Is it skill? Is it genetics? Is it Jesus? How would you know uh, if that's what was going on? We also are going to cover why. Why, for what purpose? does Jesus distribute these gifts? For what purpose uh, do we have them? What's the goal behind all of these different gifts that you may come across um, when you're reading the New Testament? And um, I am aware that coincidentally asking who gets it, how did they get it, and why did they get it are also the most pressing questions uh, that you have about coronavirus. So let's not think about that as much, and we'll we'll think about the more positive aspects of these questions, uh, which is gifts. So we'll start with our first question first, which is who? Who gets gifts? Now, this is the kind of question, like when you when you uh, broadly think about talents or skills, that uh, has been a, a part of human uh, inquiry for a very long time. Um, you may remember. Uh, the, the famous quote, uh, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them, which is, uh, of course, from the highly esteemed Gandhi. Um, I, I don't know if you noticed, but that, that's actually not true. It's actually William Shakespeare who said that. I attribute it to Gandhi first, um, because as many of you longtime sparkers know, quotes just seem so much cooler when you misattribute them to Gandhi. But this is actually, uh, it, it's from Shakespeare, but it embodies uh, a way of thinking that, that many of us have had for a very long time. And um, you know, you may see a quote like this, and I think we often do uh, come up with rubrics for like what makes people great leaders or what makes people particularly talented. And we take frameworks like this um, to, to even bring it to the Bible to say, oh yeah, in, in the Bible, this is, these, this is a good framework for how various people become great, right? You may think of, in terms of people being born great, uh, you may think of the prophet Jeremiah, who uh, is described as being set apart from birth, or the prophet Samuel, uh, whose mother uh, promised God that she would um, dedicate him to temple service even before he was born. Or there's uh, John the Baptist, who an angel told his mother when she was pregnant with him that he was going to be the forerunner to the Jesus movement. And um, 
uh, on the other side too, you have uh, you might look at this rubric and say, oh yeah, I can think of people in the Bible who've achieved greatness. There you think of someone like Joseph who was um, left for dead and sold into slavery, but um, through um, his hard work and trusting in God was able to rise to the tops uh, of the kingdom while he was in, um, in, a, in a foreign land. Um, there's also... Um, uh, Deborah, who was a judge during the time of Israel, which is an otherwise bleak time of Israel, she stands out as a shining beacon of leadership who made extremely wise, savvy decisions and was able to even win great battles uh, for the Lord uh, in the process. And then you may also think of, uh, of a character named Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who um, there's a, a story about him uh, in Israel's history where he um, followed uh, a lion on a snowy day into a pit, uh, caught the lion and killed it. This is a story of great renown or valor, uh, as it's described in the text. There's also stories uh, that fit the rubric of this, some people have greatness thrust upon them, right? We would say, oh yeah, I could think of Moses. These are the reluctant heroes, right? When Moses was um, was commissioned by God, who asked, can you pick somebody else? I don't feel like I'm up for the task. Um, there was Queen Esther, who um, by winning a beauty pageant, uh, found herself in a position without uh, without. Um, you know, deliberate um, planning on her part in a situation to be able to save uh, her entire people. And then, of course, there's um, Katniss Everdeen, who reluctantly found herself uh, as the face of a revolt uh, against captivity in Panem. And side note, of course, I'm aware that one of these leaders is not actually from the Bible. It is, of course, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, because nobody is going to follow a lion into a pit on a snowy day and kill it. That just sounds made up. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware. Thank you. So there's also the case that, like, you know, even if you think that, well, that rubric is far too simple, that's not helpful for us. We all walk around with lots of different rubrics out there of le- like models of leadership and um, models to help you uncover your talents. There are tons out there. And we often still make the, uh, the, the choice to take Bible figures and import them onto these models to try to understand what made these people great so that we could uh, imitate it as well. And um, we have talked about these kinds of um, uh, type personality typings in the past. Um, we're not going to get into it now, but um, the point that I'm making is that these models are often far too simplistic. And I know some of you are thinking, oh no, Omer, this is not simplistic at all. King David is a clear Enneagram for the, uh, the affairs, the wives, the murdering, such a four, to which I would say, uh, no thanks. Um, I would say, let's, let's think of other ways to dissect how gifting works uh, in the Bible. You know, uh, absent of those kinds of approaches, often we, we have various uh, intuitive measures that, that we take for trying to understand giftedness. Uh, if you've been watching the documentary, The Last Dance um, by ESPN and Netflix, you may assume that uh, Michael Jordan is great and therefore just do what he does and that will make you great. Um, for, for a lot of us too, who find these kinds of uh, typings uh, of discerning people's gifts far too complicated, we may default to a more rules-based approach where we try to look through scripture to 
find lists of qualifications for various leaders. And that approach can often be misleading too. So here's an example, here are examples of some of the clearest lists that we have for various church positions. This is, um, these are from uh, Paul writing to some of his colleagues, Timothy and Titus, um, to uh, churches actually in the same region that this very letter Ephesians was circulated. And there are parts of those letters where, for example, Paul will say to Timothy, now the church's overseer should be a one woman man. They should manage their own household well, and later on says must not be a recent convert, and there's a bunch of other things listed there. It's also the case that um, uh, he will later say that uh, now enroll a widow who is older than 60 years old, who is a one-man woman, and then uh, further qualifies, she should have a reputation of doing good, of raising children, washing the feet of saints. Um, uh, earlier in the letter too, Paul says, uh, deacons must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, when you read through these lists, you might say like, these sound good, but if Paul was trying to make a list of things that you should check off in order to be a leader, Following that list might be very difficult over time because if you followed this uh, this list literally, you might assume that being a great leader or an overseer of a church necessarily requires you to be married um, or to have children or to have done a good job raising them or for a widow to have to be over uh, 60 years old to get a, a kind of formal calling out within the community. Um, these are all, uh, they, they're, uh, there, there are serious problems with trying to take these literally and apply them uh, over centuries to say, this is the letter of the law, this is what makes somebody a leader and what doesn't. We understand that there's a context behind them. Same thing with deacons uh, having to hold the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. Um, do you do that? Do you? Do you? Because if you do, please let me know how. That sounds very complicated to do. But either way, my point in all of these is that we could get carried away with all these different kinds of approaches of imputing bad models onto the Bible and making it say things about what makes someone a leader or not, or what gives someone a particular gift or not. And we have to be able to find a better way to keep us from going astray here. And um, what we don't want to do, too, is on the flip side, just rely on our gut, because our instincts are often extremely misleading. They are often prejudiced, racist, or sexist, or, or any other kind of ist, right? Um, when you look at the, the Fortune 500 um, CEOs, and you see that uh, only around 6% of them are women, um, you can, I would say you can look at that to see where our gut instinct gets us um, for who is qualified to be a leader and who isn't. Um, that, that is not um, how God intends it to be, in my opinion. That's how people uh, make choices when we rely on instincts and aren't willing to challenge our own assumptions about what makes someone a good leader. So what is a more constructive way of looking at gifts? Well, what I'm hoping to do is raise better questions for us to focus discussions on this moving forward. And to do that, I actually want us to look at uh, a few different texts that Paul writes where he says something very similar to what he's saying uh, in this text in Ephesians about um, distributing gifts and the impact that it has on a community. They're very, they're similar. And so I want to talk through those here. So one is in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. 
Now, in this case, he's dealing with a similar situation of trying to ease Jewish and Gentile animosity to help uh, both sides appreciate that they're both imbued with talents and they're both there to help each other and they're both part of one body. Here's what Paul says there. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ and individually we belong to each other. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift is encouragement, devote yourself to encouraging. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be cheerful. There is another passage, again, in a similar context, this time Paul writing to a community that finds itself at odds, uh, finds its members at odds with each other um, because of pursuing or elevating gifts and talents that just make you look cooler and more important than other people in your community. So there's a problem of arrogance in the distribution of talents uh, in the church. And Paul is trying to destroy that arrogance and hostility. And here he says, a demonstration of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. A word of wisdom is given by the Spirit to one person, a word of knowledge to another according to the same Spirit, faith to still another by the same Spirit, gifts of healing to another in the, in the one Spirit, performance of miracles to another, prophecy to another, the ability to tell spirits apart to one another, different kinds of languages to another, and the interpretation of languages to another. He later says, you are the body of Christ and parts of each other. In the church, God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, the ability to help others, leadership skills, different kinds of languages. And then back to a focal area of our text that's very similar to some of these that we've just read, where in Ephesians, Paul says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Now, it's important not to think of these as like a hierarchy uh, of gifts in, in any sense, but what, you, what I hopefully um, you see when you look across these texts is that there are a lot of gifts, all kinds that God is using, and there is a coherent theme across each of these. If you were trying to ask the question, who gets these gifts, um, it is all-encompassing. In fact, it's wider than one thing. So who gets them? Well, across the text that we just read, and if you include parallel passages by other writers like Peter, you'll see every one of you, each one, each of you, each one of us. Notice the pattern. The idea that gifts are only distributed to certain kinds of people is just not going to fly in this case. Now, there, there's a great way that um, a scholar has summarized this, where they've said, um, this is a theologian, Kevin Giles, who said, throughout the New Testament documents, not one charisma or spiritual gift is reserved for any one category of members. Uh, gender, IQ, ethnic or national, powerful or weak, culturally honored or shamed, and so on. All biblical gifts are given without social restrictions attached to them. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. That all of these approaches that we talked about earlier, they rely on rubrics and lists, but human nature is far more complicated than that, right? And what uh, a big takeaway from this, um, this area of inquiry in the Bible, though, is that God does great things through any kind of person, whether the world recognizes that or not.
So the next question is, well, how? How do people um, receive these gifts? And another, we can revisit those same passages that we've just talked about and answer that uh, answer this question through that lens. So for how? Well, these passages have a theme. It's according to grace by the work of the Spirit, as God determines by grace as Christ apportioned it. In other words, God is the one doing the gifting. And that can be very powerful and encouraging if you have doubts about your own skills or if there aren't people in your community who recognize those talents. It still does raise this deeper level question of, well, given that it's from God, well, where where is that where is that talent cultivating from? Is it from uh, from the spirit? Is it from your own skills developed over time? Is it from uh, genetics? Right? Is it just something something you were born with? And on one level, it, it's very simple, right? We could say it is from God, but on another level, we know that it's actually quite complicated because we all may have been in conversations, especially with uh, church leaders sometimes who will, you know, if you ask them, like, you know, what drove you to make this decision or that decision, they may play that trump card and say, well, God called me to make that decision, right? The idea is you can say, well, God did it through me. And then you are relieved from having to explain like why you're doing what you're doing. And the, uh, obviously this approach is problematic. And it's helpful, too, in this case, to remember that, yes, although God is the one who gives gifts, it takes a community to recognize those gifts, to unleash those gifts, and to make it work. That's why Paul uses this language of body to describe gifts. It's a reminder that we are discerning uh, our talents and what we have in the context of community. So if you do feel called to do something, the reality is, is that you, it takes a combination of factors. One, uh, speaking to the spirit and to God to discern that talent in yourself. But also, you got to consult your community on this. We're all in this together to help us, uh, each other, see past our own biases and blind spots, to help us uh, give context for the talents that we think we have and also unlock talents in each other that we didn't think we had. This is a, a team effort. It's something that we, we need to be doing as a community. And the body analogy is quite helpful. So lastly, I think we should talk about why, because that, that will help us have a mission. Uh, around these gifts that that we have. So why why is God or Jesus or the Spirit, uh, why is the Trinity dispensing these gifts to us? Well, from the angle of the texts that we've written, we've gone through, um, it's for the common good so that we can all be unified, so that we can have mutual concern for each other to equip the body for works of service. Uh, pastors Danielle and Kevin talked last week about uh, how there can often be a, a temptation to be very individualistic about one's calling, to say like, well, this is this is what I'm called to do. I'm going to do me. And that's how it's going to be. And this text, these texts make it quite clear to remember the reason that God gave you these gifts in the first place was so that you can use them for building up of others. It is not about you. And the ultimate litmus test for the effectiveness of your gifts is the impact that it is having on the common good and being Christ-like and serving others. And I also want you to think much more broadly than all of the gifts that we've listed today, right? This is not 
uh, by any means a complete list, right? There, there's actually a, in passing in in a part of a broader argument that Paul makes in First Corinthians, he actually describes celibacy as a spiritual gift, which maybe many of you would have thought of that as more of a punishment than a gift. But the the point is that the you can tell that these writers have a very broad, flexible understanding of all of the different kinds of things that God has gifted God's community with, and it's up to us in community to discern with each other what those gifts are and get the most out of them. There is um, a, a final approach um, that I think is, is quite beautiful to remind us like what the stakes are in us being able to get our gifts right. And it has to do with that last part of our text where Paul says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that that is Christ, right? There's a lot of fake news out there. There are a lot of people who are trying to to get us to believe things about the world that simply aren't true. And we have to be there for each other, exercising our gifts and talents, looking out for each other so that we will not fall when the day comes that we are attacked by all of these hostile forces in the world that try to get us to deny the reality that God has made clear to us. You know, this is uh, in the time of coronavirus, we're left with a particular chance for all of us as a community to sit back and discover our core and talents, right? Maybe you um, have tried to uh, discover some new skills or cultivate uh, new skills, and you may or may not be discovering what you're good at. You may remember uh, maybe last week where um, on Spark, we shared that our son has developed a talent uh, that we had nothing, didn't know about at all of being able to um, say words uh, backwards uh, instantly after we tell it to him. Is that skill useful to God and God's kingdom? No. But the, the idea is we're all exploring our, our core and talents. And I would ask you during this time, um, let, let's think about it. Let's think about it together because the, the consequences are, are far reaching. What changes when we recognize that we are all in it together for each other and that we have gifts that we need to unlock for the sake of each other? Well, the way the rest of the book of Ephesians uh, falls out is that this recognition changes everything. It changes the way you walk. It changes the way you talk. It changes whether or how you forgive. It changes the power structures in the world. It holds slave owners and husbands and parents accountable in worlds where they are given authoritarian control over people. It affects the way we fight injustice in the world. It changes everything. That is how Paul's message unfolds in this context. So, Let's spark a conversation. Um, what might God be calling you to do? Uh, what talents might you bring uh, to the table? What do you want to work on that could become a gift for the rest of us? Let's talk about it together. Now we'll transition to the time of uh, our uh, lesson or service where we will reflect on another uniting force, and that is communion. So um, in communion, we together recognize um, Jesus's uh, life and death and his resurrection and on, on its power to bring, bring us all together and breathe life into us. And we will um, 
celebrate communion uh, through the traditional text where we read where the New Testament writers record for in the night in which he was betrayed. Our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink, this all of you this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for the many for the forgiveness of sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me and of course as jesus showed in jesus's own life and who jesus empowers uh, who jesus empowers to do great things for him all are welcome to the table thanks so much